If the spin two particles bound to a spin three halves particle in a state with zero orbital angular momentum, what is the maximum and minimum angular momentum of the bound state? So the maximum is the sum, the spins are pointing aligned, and the minimum is when the spins are anti-aligned, so seven halves and one half. And you might want to put in a, an h bar, but we, we all know there's an h bar there. If quarks have spin half, then a three-quark system can take on multiple values of spin. Why are protons all just spin a half? Um, so what happens? If we put all the quarks with their spins aligned, so we get spin three halves, uh, that's a perfectly allowed state. The issue is that uh, there's a strong force that's holding those quarks together. So in the hydrogen, <coughs> The strength of the force was alpha, 1 over 137. So there's actually forces between uh, the particles due to their spin. And in hydrogen, we'll see later on that there's uh, an extra correction to the hydrogen energy levels, depending on whether the proton and electron spins are aligned or anti-aligned. But it's a small correction, because alpha is a small number. But in a proton, the effect of alpha is about 1. So it's a big correction. So what you find is that uh, when the spins are all aligned inside a proton, uh, that energy state is 20% bigger. So that state has 20% more mass, effectively. And uh, because, again, the strong interactions are strong and alpha is 1, that state doesn't live very long. So people can see it. You can see it as a resonance, but it only exists for a tiny fraction of a second. It decays to a proton and a pion. Is S or M a measure of spinning angular momentum? So S tells us the angular momentum, because the total spin squared is S times S plus 1. M is the Z component of the angular momentum. So when we say angular momentum, we mean the S or L quantum number. Will we be using the Klebsch-Gordon tables extensively? No. We're going to do something much better. We're going to understand how to construct Klebsch-Gordon tables so that you never have to learn how to read them. You can just make them on a piece of paper by calculating the coefficients yourselves. So I never wanted to learn how to read those stupid tables. It's much easier to just calculate the coefficients. The benefit of that is then you'll actually understand what those numbers are supposed to mean, hopefully. In practice, do you always use J equals L plus S for angular momentum, or do you keep the components separate? Depends what you're interested in. So in this case where we have to account for the, the spin-dependent forces between the electron and the proton, then we need to know individually what the spin is doing, not just the total angular momentum. So depends on what, what, what's interesting in the problem. Uh, what does he mean when he says two particles spin together? If electrons can't spin, how could they spin parallel or perpendicular? So for in quantum mechanics, from now on, when we say spin, we don't mean spinning like a top. What we mean is quantized intrinsic angular momentum. But it's too long to say quantized intrinsic angular momentum every time. So we're just going to say spin. And you're going to know that since we're in quantum mechanics, we're talking about quantum mechanical spin. guys are used to context-dependent meanings, right? Uh, I'm very confused by the notation in the book. What are the M's? 
Are there two of them? Is L involved with spin as well as angular momentum? And if so, how and by what quantum numbers? So M means mass. It means Z component of angular momentum. It means Z component of spin angular, angular momentum. And probably a bunch of other things. So again, depending on the context, you're supposed to understand which M it is. L is usually always just angular momentum, I think, in this book. Uh, do the spins of two particles have to be measured on the same axis in order for them to be added? No. In principle, you could make some clever apparatus that somehow separates them out. I think in practice, what you'd have to do is uh, you set up their spin states, say singlet or triplet, and then take them apart. If you take them apart, then you can easily measure their spin along any axis you want. It would be hard to somehow measure their spins along different axes if they're in the same place, because if you're using magnetic field, for example, it's going to affect both of them. But um, you guys did the EPR paradox, I thought, last quarter, or Bell's inequalities. So in those experiments, you prepare a state, and then you take the particles apart, and you can measure them along different axes. So it's perfectly fine. It's just more complicated when we're trying to do simple stuff. And it, it only arises in those weird experiments where you do that. So you can do it. Uh, I had a hard time understanding something, unless I'm exposed to a physical analogy to it. Quantum mechanics seems to be very bare of physical examples. I don't understand that question, because everything you see around you is quantum mechanical. Everything is quantum mechanics. So if you send a silver atom through a magnetic field, <coughs> to me, that's that's a physical example. This table is solid because of quantum mechanics, as we're going to find out. That's a physical example. So there's lots of physical examples. I think the person who asked the question is not here. Yeah? I didn't ask that question, but I think what they mean is that I don't have any experience sending silver atoms through a magnetic field. So it's, it's, it seems counterintuitive. It seems like there's a lot of mathematical yeah, exercises. It's not. It's far removed from everyday experience, but it is underlies all of the physical reality that you see. And so. I also think that person meant like everything, all the physics courses we've taken, there's some connection to lower division, like classical mechanics. Um, well, this isn't classical mechanics at all. So the connection to classical mechanics is if you take the quantum numbers to be very very large, then you get back classical mechanics. So if you go to very high energy levels in a hydrogen atom, for example, then the spacings between the energy levels are very, very small. And you start approximating classical physics. If you have lots of photons all in the same state, like in a laser, then it behaves like a classical wave. So the reason there is classical mechanics is because in the limit of large quantum numbers, quantum mechanics looks like classical mechanics. And we didn't know any better, so we came up with classical mechanics to explain this special case of quantum mechanics. Uh, for the problem above, if we let the orbital angular momentum be equal to 0, is there anything we're leaving out from the calculation that should be there that may tell us additional information? Uh, yes. I mean, these things are, these particles are probably in some 
atom or there's some interaction between them, so there's energy quantum numbers or lots of other things. But we just, uh, it's the spherical cow, right? We just focused on the part of the problem that we we're interested in. A question yeah. about spin. So you say it's, it's something intrinsic, intrinsically quantized, but how does it contribute to angular momentum then? Well, it is an angular momentum, so if you want to calculate the total angular momentum, it contributes to the total angular momentum. But Just like classically, a spinning top has its internal angular momentum, and then it can orbit around something, mm -hmm. and then there's a total angular momentum. Right, like the Earth mm -hmm. revolves yeah. around the sun and rotates yeah. around the sun, but, but you said it doesn't, it, an electron doesn't spin like a top. Well, we don't, as far as we can tell, it doesn't have any volume, so doesn't, you can't have a classical picture of a little spinning ball because we don't think there's a ball there. But it has angular momentum that you can measure. So this is like, you can measure the energy of a photon with E equals mc squared, trying to, but it has no mass. Yeah. Okay. But, all the, all your classical delusions are just something you should forget about. It's not the real world. <laughs> it's a classical delusion. So last time <coughs> we uh, were trying to construct uh, operators for spin half. Spin half is fun because there's only two states. And you guys know two state systems backwards and forwards because you did a problem on it once. We're going to do a lot more problems on it. Uh, <coughs> so there's raising and lowering operators, which you worked out um, these coefficients in the, pro in the problem set. So for spin half, we can take a basis of spin up and spin down and write them as two component vectors, complex vectors, which are also spinners. And uh, the total spin squared on these states we worked out can be represented by this matrix, 3 quarters h bar squared, 1, 1 down the diagonal, because they both have spin half, and a half times a half plus 1 is 3 quarters. And we also worked out that the z component of the spin can be represented by this diagonal matrix with 1 minus 1, because this one has uh, and there's a half h bar, and this one has minus a half h bar. So since we chose, we chose this as our basis, spin up and spin down, so the spin up, the z component of the spin has to be diagonal in that basis. So it's a diagonal matrix, and its diagonal entries are the eigenvalues, the z component of the spin. So those are the easy ones. Now we'll do, we'll do the hard ones. So. We'd also like to have a matrix that represents S plus and S minus. So we know that S plus acting on spin down gives H bar spin up. So from our formula, S is a half, so that's a half times a half plus one, which is three halves. So that factor is a half times three halves minus m is minus a half for spin down, minus a half plus one is plus a half. So this is three quarters 
plus one quarter. <coughs> so this factor uh, from the raising operator is just h bar. And s plus acting on spin up is h bar spin down. It's already spin up and I raise it. Zero. It's the top state. <coughs> S minus acting on spin up gives us something times spin down. And uh, if you plug into our formula now, it's minus plus a half uh, times a half minus one because we're lowering it. So uh, this is minus a half, so again, we get a quarter. So again, the factor is 1. So this is h bar. S minus, acting on spin down, is 0, because it's the bottom state. So now we can construct the whole ma the matrices. So S plus must be this. So when we act on a two-component spinner, we get zero for the spin-up guy, and we get h-bar on the spin-down guy. Let's do an example. So if I have a state AB, try to raise it. This will give me B, and this will give me 0. So I'll get B times the spin-up. And I have a spin-up state. And it set to 0. It sets the spin-up part to 0, and raises the one that's down to up. So that's why it's a raising operator. S minus is going to be the opposite. One is going to be down here. So if we do that, so here, 0, 0, get 0 on top, and A down there. So it moved what was up, came down. Down, what was down was set to zero. So S plus and minus were Sx plus or minus I Sy. So now that we've solved for S plus and S minus, we can solve for Sx and Sy. So Sx is a half S plus plus S minus. So just plugging in from there, h bar over 2 times that matrix. Sy is 1 over 2i.
So looking at the S plus part, it's an H bar over 2. We have 1 over i multiplying that upper right 1, which is the same as minus i. And then the bottom left comes with an extra minus sign. And if we did it right, those are permission matrices. Why should they be? Because Sx and Sy are things that we're supposed to be able to measure. So when we measure them, we should get real numbers. And only permission operators are going to guarantee us to get real numbers for eigenvalues. So something that's measurable as real eigenvalues. Unless in your labs you've never had a equipment read out a complex number problem. Or a ruler. I mean complex numbers are some mathematical construction. In real world you measure real numbers. So um, because and we already had what SZ was, right, up here. So because this, these matrices come up all the time, uh, these matrices without the h bar over 2 got a name. So Pauli said, we'll call them sigma so that I can be famous. No, that's not what he said. <laughs> but he, he was famous for many reasons. But one of them was he introduced this notation. operator is h bar over 2 times this vector of matrices. So we have three matrices that are labeled x, y, and z. And so they make a vector, as long as we don't get confused that each component of the vector is a matrix. So it's a matrix value vector. This is a good tensor. everyone the first 10 times <laughs> they see it. But uh, so what are we saying? We're saying that the x component of this operator for spin half is represented by this matrix because it's a two-state system. So it's a two-by-two two matrix. So as long as you remember what it is that we're trying to do, we're talking about operators that act on a two-state system. And this operator happens correspond to a vector in the real space, a three-component vector. So there are three operators for each of its components. Those operators are two-by-two two matrices because it's a two-state system. If we'd done spin one, then we would have to represent these components of angular momentum with a three-by-three three matrix. easier if we stick to spin half. 
So, okay, now that you're all confused, it's a good time to ask a question about these matrices. Yeah? So could you just put like a little x hat next to the sigma x and a y hat next to sigma y? Would that be the same thing? Yeah, you could. Uh, you actually have to act on the states. So until you have to actually act on some chi, which is AB, you don't have to worry about the fact that they're 2 by 2 matrices. They're just sigma x, sigma y, sigma z. And when you actually have to do something with a spinner, then you can use the fact that they're 2 by 2 matrices and act on these guys. So if I have an arbitrary spinner that has components A, B, then if I measure SC, then the probability of getting spin up is supposed to be A squared, and the probability of measuring spin down is modulus of B squared. direction I'll get plus or minus a half h bar. So for this initial state, the probability of getting h bar over 2 is mod a squared. The probability of getting minus a half h bar is mod b squared. And if I send my beam of silver atoms, which have spin half, through my Stern-Gerlach apparatus, there's only two possibilities spin, if it's spin half. It's either this or that. And the sum of all possibilities, that those sum of all probabilities has to add up to 1. So we should normalize things so that a squared plus b squared equals 1. So what if we decided to be perverse and measure along the x direction? So if we measure the spin along the x direction, quantum mechanics tells us that we can only get the eigenvalues of that operator. So what are the eigenvalues of that operator? Remember how to work out eigenvalues? <coughs> so you subtract lambda, it's always called lambda in the math course, times the identity from the matrix. And then you take the determinant of the matrix and you set that equal to zero. So the determinant of two by two matrices is the only one that anyone remembers. 
because it's this times this, so it's lambda squared minus this times this. Take <coughs> first square root of four. So lambda equals plus or minus h bar over two. Just like z component. So now that we know the eigenvalues, we can work out the eigenvectors. So our matrix, h bar over 2 times sigma x, acts on some unknown spinner. And it has to give us plus or minus h bar over 2 times that same spinner. So operator acting on eigenvector gives eigenvalue times eigenvector. So since we know the eigenvalues, now we can figure out what the eigenvectors are. So over here, 0, 1 on here gives beta, 1, 0 gives alpha. So it's supposed to be plus or minus h bar over 2 beta. So solution is beta equals plus or minus alpha. And if it's plus, then the eigenvalue is the plus h bar over 2. And if it's minus, then the eigenvalue is the minus h bar over 2. So now we know what the eigenvectors are. So we'll put a little x up there to remind us that now we're talking about uh, spin up in the x direction. And we're supposed to normalize the sum of the squares to 1. So this is telling us that this is the eigenvector, or eigenspinner. Do you guys like spinner or vector? We can call them vectors if it makes you guys feel better. They're just complex vectors, but spinners sound so cool. Okay, this complex vector up to an overall phase, we don't care about overall phases usually. Uh, it has to be 1 over root 2, 1 over root 2, because beta, the bottom guy, is equal to the top guy, and the sum of the squares is 1. So that squared is a half, that squared is a half. So that's the eigenvector that corresponds to plus h bar over 2. So that's what we call spin up in the x direction. Spin down in the x direction. The bottom component is supposed to be minus the top component. We still have to add up to 1 when we square them. And we chose the overall phase, so this guy's real again. And not surprisingly, this vector is orthogonal to that vector because eigenvectors are all, always orthogonal. So if I take the dot product of this vector with that vector, I get a half minus a half. Everyone see why that happens? So we go back to our arbitrary state that we said had coefficients a, b. So probability amplitude A to be spin up, probability amplitude B to be spin down. 
in this z direction, we can write that in our new basis. So if we take a plus b over root 2 times spin up in the x direction, a minus b over root 2 in the spin down direction. So if I combine, if I added these up, what would I get? So I'd get a plus b over root 2 times root 2 in the upper component from here, and a minus b over root 2 times 1 over root 2 over there. So the b's will cancel, and I'll get a over 2 plus a over 2. So I get a. Here, I'll get a plus b over 2 and minus a plus b over 2 in the bottom component. So that adds up to b. Does everyone see why that's an identity? Does anyone want to ask a question about why that's an identity? Yeah? The numbers you're getting here, like a plus b over root 2, isn't that a, b times psi of x already? Well, let, let's plug this in. We'll do it explicitly. So a plus b over root 2 times 1 over root 2. I'm plugging in for this I guess guy I'm, I'm just here. I'm confused where you're getting this a plus b over root 2 from. Shouldn't it just be a psi x up plus b? So this is this is time we could write this as a times psi up plus b times psi down. That's what this means. But now I'm writing it in terms of spin up and down in the x direction. in what we worked out what these spin up and down in the x directions are, if I plug that into here, I'll get this. And so in the upper part, the b's cancel, and I get a. In the bottom part, the a's cancel, and I get b. So we're just rewriting things in a different basis. It's the same state, just different basis vectors. So now, when I measure <laughs> spin in the x direction, the probability of getting spin up in the x direction is going to be the modulus of a plus b over root 2 squared. The probability of getting spin down in the x direction is going to be a minus b over root 2 squared. better be that this plus that equals 1. Otherwise, quantum mechanics doesn't work. Everyone see why that's 1? It's painful to see why that's 1, but we'll try. So let's, let's write b is some real constant times a times e to the i theta. <coughs> 
and we can we can assume that a is real because we can multiply the whole thing by its a's. So then a plus b is a times one plus c i theta. A minus b is a times one minus c i theta. The mod of a plus b squared. I have to multiply this by its complex conjugate. So we get a squared, 1 plus c e to the i theta times 1 minus c e to the i theta. 1 plus c e to the i theta times 1 plus c e to the minus i theta. Let's write it out. these two together, I have to divide by 2. So I'm trying to calculate this sum, this squared plus this squared. So there's an overall factor of a half. Run that over. time to review linear algebra if this seems confusing. Or <coughs> I can't tell if you guys are confused or bored. Or both. Can be both, yeah. I think we're just shell shocked from the homework. From the homework. <laughs> <laughs> what quantum mechanics homework is harder than the EM homework? Yes. Apparently a book's worth of homework. five times a book's worth of homework? Like 20 pages? 20 pages? Uh, should I we? Think, I think we're Did still you compare your solutions with the posted solutions last week? They weren't 20 pages. Uh, this one's longer. This one's longer? Our quietness is just the lack of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> also, my advice is not to do it. The, 
Thursday night? No, we do Since Monday. Neither is, um, I'm trying to connect this with the probabilities, I guess. Okay. So how do I use this to find A and B? Yes. Um, I, mean, I can get that magnitude of A and B because we measured Z. So. Yeah, so in the case where we measured Z, then the probability of measuring spin up was mod A squared. So that probability, you measure that probability in your experiment and that gives you uh, mod A squared. And then by measuring in the x direction, you get independent information because then you're getting mod of A plus B over root 2 squared. And if you need to, you can uh, do it in the y direction. And so comparing, so you have, so each of these measurements gives you two equations. You have six equations. So to find two unknowns. We, we use the two probabilities that we got to solve C and okay, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. Um, so we can, uh, we have an option here. So one of our quantum stump the chump questions was the many worlds interpretation. We can do that now applied to Stern Gerlach, or we can review Stern Gerlach first. You guys have already forgotten it. Which do you want to do? No opinion. I have yeah. a better question. Um, we haven't found the phase yet, have we? Here? Um, only if we knew, if we plugged in that this is equal to something. So we'd have to compare this with some measurement in order to fix what that phase was. Okay, and then to do that, you're going to use P in terms of the CAE to the I. Um, say uh, well, yeah, you could write it this way. So this was just a check that probability still add up to one, no matter what happened. Okay, because I, I know we were trying to do the homework yesterday, Christian, and you were like, this was really a problem, you couldn't figure out what we were doing. So you've found what you know what um, A is. Mm -hmm. So we can choose that to be real. So that's known. And you know what the modulus of B is, so that tells you what C is. And now you just need to work out what this phase is. So knowing you've met you've measured what this modulus is and this modulus. So comparing these two, knowing what C is, then you should be able to figure out what value of theta makes those equations work. So when did we measure this A plus B value? So, when you, so you met in the, when you measured spin along the Z direction, that told you modulus of A squared and modulus of B squared. When you measure it in the X direction, it tells you modulus of A plus B and modulus of A minus B. And then there's a different combination if you measure it in the y direction. Okay, so I think we better review Stern Gerlach before we get fancy with many worlds. Unless, am I wrong?
Was it the same experiment mm -hmm. we did with the work? It's the same experiment we talked about for two weeks. So on day one, we talked about Lamar procession. We didn't call it Lamar procession, but now you've read about Lamar procession. So now day one all ma makes sense. So if you have a, a uniform magnetic field in the z direction and a magnetic moment, which should be some number times the spin, classically, classically you'd expect this up to a factor of two. Uh, so we put a magnetic moment in a magnetic field. We have a term in the Hamiltonian that couples them. And since the magnetic field is in the z direction, this only depends on the spin in the z direction. And we know that the spin in the z direction can be represented by this matrix. And if we choose our basis to be spin up and spin down in the z direction. And our Schrodinger equation is that. And it's just trivially two exponentials depending on whether we're in the upper part or the lower part, we have opposite sign. If you plug this and take it into here and take its derivative, we'll get that. So if we take expectation, yeah? Turn it back this It's just I'm very, very So we've just chosen some random angle alpha over 2 because this squared plus that squared has to add up to 1. So we can write that as cosine and sine. And we know the answer, so we made it alpha over 2 instead of alpha. So if we take the expectation value of the spin in the z direction, we take our two-component vector, complex vector, and put the operator acting on it, and then the complex conjugate of the vector transposed on the left so that we get an inner product, state, operator, state. And then we just multiply it through. This is a diagonal matrix. So just putting in a relative minus sign, we get cos squared minus sine squared, which is the same as cos alpha. Yeah? That first size, should that be sine diagonal? <coughs> when it's a bra, when oh, it's on okay. the left, the bra means right. that it's diagonal. So we get h bar over 2 cos alpha. Do the same thing in the x direction, but now we have sigma x appearing here. So when this sigma x acts on this, 0, 1 pulls the sine up to the top. 1, 0 pushes the cosine to the, bot the bottom. So we'll get cos alpha sine alpha. And then the phases won't cancel because it's e to the i omega t 
e to the i omega t over 2. So we'll get e to the i omega t. And we can write this as a cosine of omega t. So now, if you measure spin in the x direction, it's oscillating in time. So it's processing. And then in the y direction, it's the same thing, but there's an extra minus sign. So we get an extra minus sign here, so we'll get a sign. And now, knowing x and y, we can see which way it processes. So it processes in different directions, depending on whether it was a plus or minus charge. Right. Omega was proportional to the, that gamma factor, which was proportional to charge. So classically, you would say the spin is processing, and it makes an angle alpha with the z-axis, if you put it in a uniform magnetic field. So these, classical, these expectation values behave like classical observables. So that's just the summary. So that was too easy. And we've seen this before. You guys have done it in your lab a million times now. So you send your silver atoms through a non-uniform magnetic field, and it splits into two beams, because the silver has spin half, effectively. So. If we analyze this case, here's the same Hamiltonian, but now the magnetic field is not uniform. So it has some gradient in the z direction. And in E and M, you were supposed to learn that div B equals zero, because there's no magnetic monopoles, at least in this experiment. So to satisfy div B equals zero, this is the z component. There must be some other component that cancels that. Uh, when we take the gradient as a divergence. So um, since we're sending this uh, through this magnetic field, if there's we have this component in the z direction with a gradient, um, there's also a constant background. So this constant background is going to make it process. So the fact that there's some magnetic field in the x direction, uh, in the end, it's all going to cancel out because the thing is processing around the z-axis. So there's always a component of the spin. There's a constant component of the spin pointing in the z direction. But the component in the x direction is oscillating. So on average, it should cancel out. But we'll just be, so physically, that's what happens. It cancels out because there's many oscillations in the x direction. We'll just be tricky and say that we carefully aligned our beam so it's at x equals 0. So we'll just ignore it. So what happens if you're sitting on top of the silver atom? You guys wanted a physical example. Sit on top of the silver atom. Um, before we get into the magnetic field, we'll say we enter at t equals 0. There's no contribution because the magnetic field is 0 there. We enter the magnetic field, and it takes us some time, capital T, to get through it. So in that region, the Hamiltonian is this non-uniform magnetic field in the z direction, dotted into our spin. And then we exit the magnetic field at time t, so then the Hamiltonian is 0 again. 
So let's say that uh, before we get in the magnetic field, we have a probability amplitude A to be spin up and amplitude B to be spin down. And we know how to solve this equation. It's just those simple exponentials in time again. If we plug it into the Schrodinger equation. So if we differentiate this, when T is between, when we're inside the magnetic field, differentiating this with respect to T, plugging into the Schrodinger equation, we'll get back this Hamiltonian. Because it's just, this is just linear in time. So first order differential equation. Easy stuff, right? And we know that this omega that appears is the same omega that we saw before in the Lamour procession. Because this part of the, this is just the constant magnetic field, uniform magnetic field. So that's the same problem we just did. So the only trick is there's an extra piece proportional to z. So after we get out of the magnetic field, what does our wave function look like? So the Hamiltonian zero again, so it doesn't change after time t. So the thing that appears in the exponent is just that time where it stopped evolving. And now you can see that it's split into two beams. So if you measured the z component of the momentum, which is a derivative with respect to z, one of them comes with a plus, and one comes with a minus. So when one part of the beam, the part that started spin up, is going in one direction in z, and the other part is going the opposite direction, depending on what the charge was, or not the charge, the gamma. So there's some gamma for a silver atom that we're not going to calculate today. But uh, it has to go into two beams because it's got different momenta. The part that was spin up and spin down has different momentum in the z direction. So as it goes forward, it's, they're getting further apart. OK. Is everyone happy with that? We're going to discuss the Stern-Gerlach experiment at least one more time. I guess we're going to do many worlds next week. Are there any questions? So the new problem set is up. Solutions should be up on Monday. <laughs>